That's me. Good morning. <laughs> I am very used to not reading directions ahead of time, so uh, it's never a surprise to me that I miss my cue. Maybe it is to you, but not to me. <laughs> uh, I, on the way here, I thought, man, I think I wore this outfit the last time I was here. So, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's surprising to me in some ways as a grown-up that we still have those kinds of questions, right? Like, is that going to be okay? Is anybody going to whisper that I'm wearing the same outfit that I probably wore last time? Like, just those little tiny subtle things that I think we are always triangulating, even as grown-ups. Like, am I okay? Am I enough? Am I presenting myself well? Will they like me? Will they not like me? Will they accept me for who I am? We are actually in a series where we're trying to unpack some of those deeper what we call primal questions about ourselves. When I was uh, uh, little, one of the stories that was told about me was that I was switched at birth, like no joke, I was switched at birth for a whole day in the hospital. The, somehow it got mixed up and my mom was handed a baby that wasn't me and my grandma came uh, you know, the next day to see me again and she said, Who's this? <laughs> who is this child? And my mom's like, this is Scott. And my grandmother said, no, it's not. That's not the child I met yesterday. And my mom was like, whoa. And they ended up having to do the, the footprint and handprint thing, and they found out that I apparently was with another family the entire day. My older sister loved that story. She would whisper to me in the darkest moments, you don't belong here. This isn't your family. And it would just kind of shake me to my core. I remember being five or six years old, and she would still kind of play on that joke, and I would just freak out, <laughs> and my mom would reassure me, no, we got the right one. Later on, when I found out all the family dysfunction, that actually gave me a lot of comfort. Perhaps I don't belong here. <laughs> Perhaps I don't share the same DNA. Uh, it's not just that. I think uh, that kind of always opened me up to this broader question, do I belong here? Do I belong in this family. And uh, some of you likely had really horrible circumstances at that very young, uh, kind of one to five years old, where you were given messages just unfortunately, fundamentally, that you're not wanted here. And those memories sit deep. Attachment researchers would say that's actually the formation for all of our adult dysfunction is those first early years. And if we weren't given proper, good, answers to these big primal questions, we will carry those questions well into adulthood, likely not even realizing that they're kind of operating everything. Am I wanted? Do they want me? And behind that question is other kind of deeper concepts. Am I accepted? Am I okay? Is the real me wanted here? Early on, that is primarily a question that we have for our families, but around the age of middle school, junior high, that question shifts not just to our family, but to our peers. And it's a horrible, horrible thing that we all have to go through, where we take these big primal questions, whether or not they were answered by our family, and we start actually asking them for other people that are our age. Do you like me? Am I accepted? Am I safe with you? Do you want me here? Is who I am acceptable to you? And when you have a bunch of people who are doing that at the same time, they're all asking the same questions to each other, nobody's ever really able to give each other proper answers at that age. They don't have the capacity yet at 11, 12, 13 to look someone else in the eye and say, yes, I see you, I see your, all your flaws and all your beauty, and I like who you are, I accept who you are. 
And we don't get that, most of us, in those kind of early teenage, adolescent years. And so again, we carry those questions well into adulthood. I have these key memories. I would encourage you maybe to go down some memory lane. I remember losing the election in sixth grade. And sixth grade for me was still elementary school. I was the big man on campus, or so I thought. And I went up in front of the school and gave a speech. I think it was the VP of finance or something that I wanted to do. I didn't, didn't think I'd be president. I didn't want to you know, shoot for the stars. I wanted to go with a position that I knew that I would win. And I don't remember the speech, but I remember the announcement that was given a couple hours later after they took the vote. And not only did I not win, I didn't even get second place. I, I remember going to middle school. It was just a few months after that. And I think because of that moment kind of shook me right at the same age, 12, 11 years old, when I was starting to ask those questions of my peers, and the first answer I got, am I acceptable, do you want me, was no, <laughs> not even like close. <laughs> we want you like third. Uh, if that person dies, then that person dies, then I guess we'll take you. I carried that question well into middle school, into junior high, and again, at that time, nobody's really able to give you a good answer to that question, and I just remember the entire kind of middle school years just feeling like I don't fit in here. And I remember going and transitioning to high school, and I thought, okay, high school, you know these big transitions that we go through? I thought, okay, uh, there, when I get there, it's going to be better, it's going to be okay. And the first thing I did was uh, uh, try out for this basketball team, and I get just uh, got everything handed to me within a, within a minute. I knew I did not have what it took. I'd only ever played in recess and at lunch. And all these other kids had grown up playing in leagues and had proper instruction, and I just... I didn't make the team, and I thought, okay, I'll go with, like, kind of, I wasn't a mu musical, but I picked something that I, again, thought I knew I could get into. It was the golf team. Like, who plays golf when you're 14? Apparently, everybody did in South Orange County, and I didn't even make, not, I didn't make the varsity team. I didn't make the junior varsity team. There was a frosh soft team. There was actually a freshman team. I didn't make any of those teams. And those early years in high school were the same question. Like, does anybody want me? And then you start really, with that question unanswered, you start doing whatever it takes to get that answer. Because you can't live, no one can really live without that answer, uh, without, without that question being answered in a proper way. So you search for it. Uh, I search for it by trying to be a good student. I search for it trying to be funny. I search for it trying to be agreeable. I search for it trying to get girls to like me. And every single way that you go, every single way that I went, the answer continued to be, well, not exactly. Do you want me? Am I okay? Well... Not exactly. To this day, uh, whenever we go to Target with, you know, having three kids, we go to Target like every day. And every time I walk into Target, I still remember I, I applied there three times. I never got hired at Target. I still walk in with a chip on my shoulder <laughs> to Target. I mean, I still remember that. We remember those messages that we got. You remember those people that told you you weren't good enough. You remember when your heart got broken. You remember when you didn't get invited to homecoming or the person who didn't. You, we remember those things, and we carry them with us. I was talking with my good friend the other day. He has two boys who are in, in middle school. We're having a conversation around this exact conversation, and he said, and I was telling him, yeah, you, you know, we all have those memories where we, don't, where we weren't wanted, and he reminded me this time. I totally forgot. Uh, we were juniors in high school. He was my best friend, and, and there's this girl that I was uh, really starting to talk to and like, and uh, somehow I, and she was uh, kind of a more conservative family, and uh, nevertheless, I said, hey, I would love to go on a date with you, whatever. And she said, you know, my parents don't feel comfortable with that, but, I, but if I brought a friend, uh, then I can go. 
And I said, awesome, I've got a friend, he's really lonely, he would love to go on a double date. She was super cute, and she's like, don't worry, I got a really good friend, she'll be, it'll be so fun. Long story short, I call my friend Nick and say, Nick, let's go, I've got this, we got a double date. And he's just like, I mean, he was on cloud nine, and so was I. And we show up and knock on the girl's house on the door, she answers, and uh, my, my Nick, uh, Nick is right behind me, and he's just kind of like waiting. He doesn't even know, I mean, it's like completely blind date, doesn't know who he's going to see. And then she says, oh, my, my friend can't come. And the whole plan was I was going to pick her up, and, or the, both of them up, and we were going to go to, the, we lived in South Orange County, go to the Orange County Fair and uh, spend the afternoon together. And so all of a sudden, we didn't know what to do. Long story short, the three of us went. And I was on a date with this girl, and he was behind me. So he was reminding me of, like, one of the worst days of his life was with me on a failed double date. And he said, I, you know, that, that message of, uh, he's like, when I think of a time when I wasn't wanted, it was when I was literally the third wheel on your date. And we've all been in those moments. It's not just relationally. Uh, many of us, no matter what the transition is, maybe it's a move, and you move into a new neighborhood, and all, this, all of a sudden, that question becomes really live again. Am I wanted? People want me here. Uh, we have a new job, new colleagues. Maybe you're on a new team at work. And all of a sudden, you're asking that same question. Do you want me here? And sometimes we can kind of, you know, it's, yeah, it's the position I play. It's the role that I have. No one really wants new neighbors necessarily. Uh, maybe we kind of try to depersonalize it. But fundamentally, that question below there is like, does anybody want me? Like me, if they knew me. Because acceptance is part of it. As I work with uh, teenagers, one of the dynamics we talk about a lot is belonging inside schools. And of course, we want students to feel like they're welcome. We want kids to feel like the adults and the environment, it's a caring culture. We want you here. But uh, uh, there's kind of two parts of it. One part that I tried to do in, in middle school and high school was to fit in. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to make sure that I was wearing the right things, saying the right things, listening to the right music, had the right style, drove the right car, just so I can kind of like get the entry pass to get into whatever the acceptance was. And that's one level, and that's kind of where most people live, the acceptance path. But the other thing that we actually want underneath that is not acceptance, it's belonging. And acceptance is different. Acceptance is I'm fitting in, I'm blending in. People will say, yeah, you could be here, but belonging is different. Belonging is when they get to know you, like the real you your personality, what your, what your interests are, what motivates you. They really get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And nevertheless, they look at the real you and say, yeah, you can stay. That's what we all want. And if we don't have that question resolved, we'll carry that. We'll carry that into our relationships. We'll carry that into our work. We'll carry that into our neighborhoods. We're not, uh, it's not just you and I that have uh, wrestled with this. There's a bunch of characters in the Bible that we're going to turn to that have had that same exact question, uh, an open, unresolved uh, uh, question about, am I wanted? I think of, uh, right, kind of right off the bat, kind of the surface, there's people like Zacchaeus, who's in the New Testament. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and he had this experience, it seems like, where he was so interested, so desperate to be wanted uh, by his peers, being a tax collector meant that he had chosen a path and chosen a profession that excluded him. Uh, he knew that the people around him, his people, his chosen people, his tribe, did not accept him uh, because of the choices he had made. He was so desperate for that, and he was looking for uh, kind of the answers in the wrong ways. I think of people like Mary Magdalene, there's uh, all across the New Testament, 
But we're going to turn to the Old Testament. There's a character. It comes from a book in the back, kind of the front of the Bible, uh, way back when, from a book called Judges, and it's chapter 6. And there's a character in there named Gideon. And Gideon is maybe a familiar, if you grew up in church, which I didn't, but Gideon is one of those stories that's talked about uh, to little kids uh, in Sunday school. Gideon, I'm going to give you the context here. Uh, uh, Gideon wrestled with this question, and I think as we get to know uh, a little bit about his story and his backstory, uh, that we can find ourselves and resonate with what his experience was. So we're going to turn to Judges 6. I'm going to walk us through it. And then um, before that, let me pray. Uh, Lord, uh, as we turn to Gideon, I, I, I pray that you and your Holy Spirit would help us to uh, uh, kind of reflect on our own hearts and uh, that you would guide us to be um, aware of the ways in which we've longed for acceptance and haven't experienced it to the depth that we, that we hope for, whether it's by our family or by peers or by colleagues. Uh, I, I pray actually that you would help us remember those moments where we experienced or felt rejected. Uh, not so that we'll feel uncomfortable or pain, but so that we can uh, kind of tap into the parts of our hearts and our souls that uh, really long Long for deep connection, long for deep acceptance by you. And I pray as we look at Gideon, God, that you would open up the eyes of our heart to hear what you have to say to us, each of us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Judges chapter 6, the, the context, we're going to meet this character named uh, Gideon. And Gideon lives in, in this uh, uh, part of history of Israel where they were experiencing, it's kind of, maybe you've heard of this idea of exile, and that's a part of Israel's history where uh, other uh, foreign invading bodies came in and and conquered Israel and scattered and kind of took the leaders out. Uh, And that's kind of a meta theme in the Old Testament. Really, the entire Bible is a lot about exile, where you kind of feel like you don't belong here. Uh, You're a foreigner in this land. Uh, And what we're going to zoom in on is not a time when uh, the Israelites experienced exile in kind of the geographic sense. They weren't gone and scattered out in the world. But the exile that they experienced and were feeling was that God's presence was no longer with them. God's protection and, his, uh, and kind of the, the military presence that he would bring when they were in a right relationship, when the Israelites were in a right relationship with God, they weren't experiencing that. And in fact, it specifically says in Judges chapter 6, verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so after a while, God would always warn, warn the Israelites, hey, if you choose not to respond to me, if you choose not to obey me, if you choose not to live into the life that I've invited you to live into, then you can have, your, have it your way. And I'll just kind of back out. And God would give them warnings over time. It wasn't like all of a sudden he was just random and say, hey, you, you didn't listen to me like we might be tempted to do with our kids and kind of just all of a sudden be intense with them. God would always give lots and lots of warning, years and years of warnings. It seems like God would say, you don't want to be in a relationship with me based on your choices, so I'm just going to back out. And that's what's happening in this context. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of this uh, foreign uh, um, people group, the Midianites. And it says here, and, uh, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. And I just want to recognize here, especially as Ariane was um, uh, guiding us in prayer earlier, that I, I was um, really choosing and picking this passage of Scripture about Israel being invaded uh, like two weeks ago, way before what happened yesterday. But I, I just kind of recognize there's some overtones here 
that are very, maybe ironic at the, at the very least. Uh, Midian was so impressive, the Israelites prepared shelters. They would hide. The, the Israelites were hiding in caves. And uh, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and other people, the Malachites and other eastern peoples, invaded the country. Uh, they would camp on the land and they would ruin all the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. They'd kill all their sheep, their cattle, or their donkeys. Uh, they came up with their livestock and, and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. What the Israelites are experiencing in this context, in these years, was, and, and this is what happens to us when things aren't going the way they're supposed to, we start having these fundamental questions come up. And their questions were questions like, is God for us anymore? What happened? What did we do wrong? And they're, uh, without understanding how to resolve that with God, they would just try to make the best of it. And their version of making the best of it was just by hiding. They didn't know how to lean into what God had promised, and so they would just hide in caves and do their best just to survive. So their mindset was very much in a survival way. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Seven years of every single time the crops would grow, the Midianites and other foreign invaders would come in and take all of their crops and kill all of their livestock. And it's finally, in verse 6, Midian so impoverished them that they finally cried out to God for help. God, would you help us? God, where are you? God, would you come and intervene? Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under an oak tree in a place called Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah, that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Gideon, the son of a guy named Joash, is threshing wheat, which essentially means you can imagine a, a pile of hay. This is This is me from South Orange County telling you about how farming works. A pile of hay and a pitchfork. And the way they would find the wheat, the good stuff, the fruit in there, you would want to be in kind of the breeziest part. Now they'd have, obviously, machines that do this for you. But back then, they would have a, uh, like, imagine the big pitchfork, and you'd want to throw the hay up. And then the wind would uh, carry the the chaff, the, the lightest stuff, away, and the heavy stuff, the fruit, would kind of, and you would just do it over and over and over again until you got, and you just kind of, you're sifting. You're sifting the good stuff. That's how you do it, but what uh, Gideon is doing, because again, he's in this time of Israel where um, they don't know where God is. They don't know who they belong to anymore. They don't know who is uh, protecting them, so they're hiding. And it says Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press, essentially like a dark room, a cave, where there's no wind. And he's just, just imagine kind of the mindset of where you're at, where you're just trying to survive. You don't want any foreign invading land, a, a, a people group, to see what you're doing because they might, this is your food for your family. So he's doing it in the most kind of inefficient way as you possibly could. He's doing whatever it takes just to survive. Trying to figure out for himself on his own how to live. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and he says this to Gideon, to this kid who's hiding in a cave. He says this, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I don't know if you're like me. I, I uh, uh, always have done my own yard work. If I ever make millions of dollars, I will still do my own yard work. Yard work for me 
Maybe it's uh, cleaning for you. Maybe it's organizing for you. It's like it is the most kind of uh, menial task that I do where it, what it turns into when I'm pulling weeds or mowing the lawn, I just find myself just kind of like processing all this stuff in my life. And I often, I'm, I'm not, I don't talk out loud, I don't think, maybe I do, but I find myself, I'll catch myself actually having like arguments with people. Have you ever done this? Have you ever noticed this about yourself? I'll like have arguments with people, and sometimes those people and those events, those arguments were years ago. But I'm, I'm just kind of like working, and I, I guess there's something about the lawnmower or the menial task or something that kind of gets me in that zone of like, I'm just in a conversation, and I'm just, I don't know, I'm trying to qualify things or kind of argue for things or help someone see something or uh, uh, saying things I wish I had said, and, and I'll just kind of catch myself, and it'll be this kind of out of body, like, wow, that's weird. This is kind of what is happening to Gideon, and the angel of the Lord, remember, angels are like gigantic and intense, and, and the angel says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, and Gideon immediately responds. It's the only time I know about in the entire Bible story where when an angel shows up, um, every other time, somebody responds in awe and worship or fear of an angel, God's presence, not Gideon. This angel shows up to Gideon, and Gideon immediately launches into an argument with God, with an angel of God. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replies, but if the Lord is with us, kind of, if the Lord's with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they told us did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. He was ready for an argument. He was ready for a fight. He's been thinking about this. He's been trying to, if, if we belong to God, where is he? Has been his fundamental question. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? He says it again. Pardon me, my Lord. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answers, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Here we see an argument wrestling with the same question we're talking about this morning. Gideon has very good arguments for why his experience with God cannot really resolve his biggest questions. Not only has God apparently abandoned us, apparently if we belong to God, I re- he's like, I remember the stories. Our ancestors told us, we belong to God, that means we get rescued out of slavery, out of Egypt. We belong to God, so that means we are in this land, the promised land, and God is for us. We belong to God, so he protects us. We belong to God, so we are blessed. And then ultimately, that's just about kind of survival and having your own people group. We belong to God, therefore we're the ones who are sent out to the whole world, not to damage, not to pillage, but to bless. That's the story that he's been told, but that's not his experience. You say we're loved. You say we're accepted. Where are you? And not only that, not just our people, he's like, look at me. I'm the weakest in my family. Our family is the weakest in the tribe. How dare you say that, Lord, to me? You don't know the real me. Uh, the Lord answers, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon says, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Give me a sign that you're for me. Give me a sign that you accept me, the weakest, the smallest. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. And the rest of the chapter and a couple chapters after this, 
It's a process, a back and forth, where Gideon is testing God, testing, do you really accept me? Me from my family? Do you really think that I, I don't trust you? And there's this process where Gideon has to go through to shed the experience, the mindset, the, 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 all the messages he's, he's been receiving over the years about who he is. He didn't just come up with, I'm the smallest, I'm the weakest. He didn't just all of a sudden, I'm sure he had some good evidence for it. I'm sure he had whispers. I'm sure he might have even made, made fun of. You're the smallest, you're the weakest. Gideon's bringing those questions straight to God, and God wants to give him a different answer to those questions. Because where he's been taking those questions, the answers have been clear. That is who you are. You're not a warrior. You're the smallest, and you're the weakest. But God sees Gideon in a different way. That's one of the problems that we have, especially back in those early years. We bring those live questions to the people around us, and even if we get people to say, yeah, we think you're cool, you're wearing the right thing, we think you're funny, we think you're smart. Even if, in a culture like La Jolla, you get accepted to the right university, you get the right job, you earn the money, you get the house, even if you get those kinds of answers to those questions, you know deep down that those are just faint answers. Those are not real answers to are you accepted? Do you belong? Are you wanted? It just means you did a good job at playing the game. It just means you got lucky. It just means your circumstances put you in that direction of being successful. You know deep down that those answers from those people, from those accomplishments, from those possessions will never be enough. And that's where God wants to point us in the conversation he's having with Gideon. It's, no, no, no. Look at me, what I'm telling you. I wonder if some of us deep down still wonder if we are wanted, all of us, who we are. I wonder if some of us, even if we've been given answers, we have the family, we have the, the kids, we got the dog. By the way, we just ordered another dog. <laughs> we have a three-year-old golden doodle, total COVID dog, and that mom had a new litter, and I just was beaten down by my entire family, and I said, have your way. Not my will, but yours be done. And we bought a puppy like three days ago. And uh, it's, <laughs> there's no one else in my life that lets me know how wanted and accepted I am than little Dolly. She just absolutely loves me. If you have a dog, you know. Not cat people, but dog people. We know fundamentally who we are deep down. We are accepted and loved and wanted. Even if we've been gone for five minutes, we get the answer. It's God's spirit going through the angel of our dog saying, you, exactly you, are wanted. Grumpy you, smelly you, irritated you, like uh, the dog just loves you. There's, so we can't get enough of that. We want more of that message. But I wonder if some of us continue to carry that question. And in and, and so many ways, we carry that question looking for answers in the places that will never deeply satisfy. And so the message and invitation of this morning, the message of Gideon, is to return to God, to listen and try to hear his voice for you exactly who you are, exactly what you've done or haven't done, exactly you with any sort of regret or failure or disappointment, any way you haven't lived up to your potential, any way that you've made massive mistakes in your life. Uh, he wants you to know, despite that, in spite of who you are, that he's for you and he accepts you. 
I want to close with uh, reading a story. It's a, it's a powerful story by a guy named Tony Campolo. He's a sociologist, an author. Uh, you might have come across his books. He's, he's still around. He's in his late 80s. And he, he wrote this story that I, I think uh, uh, encapsulates a lot of what uh, the message of Gideon is getting for us. He says this, uh, If you live on the East Coast and travel to Hawaii, you know that there is a time difference that makes 3 o'clock in the morning feel like 9 p.m. With that in mind, you'll understand that whenever I go out to our 50th state, I find myself wide awake long before dawn. Not only do I find myself up and ready to go while almost everybody else is still asleep, but I find that I want breakfast when almost everything on the island is closed, which is why I was wandering up and down the streets of Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning looking for a place to get something to eat. Up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat at one of the stools at the counter, and waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I mean, I did not even touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened the thing, something gruesome would crawl out. But it was the only place I could find. The big guy behind the counter came over and asked me, what do you want? I told him a cup of coffee and a donut would be great. He poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron, then grabbed a donut off the shelf behind him. <laughs> I'm a realist. I know in the, in the back of the room of that restaurant, donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around. But when everything is out front where I could see it, I really would have appreciated if he'd use a pair of tongs and place the donut on some wax paper. As I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on the other side of me. Their talk was loud, and it was crude. I felt completely out of place. I was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman sitting beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want from me, a birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday or something? Come on, the woman said next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party my whole life. Why should I have one now? When I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited till the woman had left. Then I called over the big guy behind the counter and asked him, do they come in here every night? Yep, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. What do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday, I told him. What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? A smile slowly crossed his chubby face, and he answered with major delight. That's great. I like it. That's a great idea. Calling to his wife, who did all the cooking in the back room, he said, hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. This guy wants to go in with us and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room all bright and smiley. She said, that's wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of those people who's really nice and kind, and nobody ever does anything nice for her. Look, I told him, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the cake. So at 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I'd picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that said, happy birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cookie must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30, on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friends. 
I had everybody ready. After all, I was kind of the MC of the affair. And when they came in, we all screamed, happy birthday. Never in my life have I ever seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led uh, to one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. As we came to the end of our singing, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles lit on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And after an endless few seconds, he did. Then he handed her a knife and told her, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. And then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you if I, I mean, is it okay if I kind of, what I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake for a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I, she said. Then looking at me, she said, I just live down the street a couple doors. I just want to take the cake home and show it to my mother, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carried it like it was the holy grail, walked slowly toward the door. As we all stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner at Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning, but it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment, then he answered, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Bottom line, God wants you. And bottom line, not only does he want you, but he wants you to be the kind of person who communicates the same message to the people around you. Like to order to kind of live into the answer that God has for you, that he wants you, I believe that in order to really experience that, we have to be the conduits to it to the people around us. Like to really sit with somebody and, and see them and, and to lean towards them in such a way that you want to get to know them like more about them than you've known before. You want to get to know them. You want to mirror back to them who they are, for better and for worse. It's not just being happy and positive and throwing parties for people, but to really see them for who they actually are and for you to actually communicate with your face and your eyes and, your, and the words you use and your gestures that they are wanted, that you are actually the message of God to them. That's when you will start experiencing deep down the same yes, the same yes for you, because you're giving the yes to them. That's what it's like to live into what God has for us. So I don't know who's around you. There's probably annoying people all around you, aren't there? People you work with and live with and sleep next to and, and uh, go and get the mail next to. They're all annoying. If you really thought about it, they're just 
prickly people. They have flaws and foibles, and they're irritating, and they're small-minded, and they're judgmental, and they vote a different way. And they carry the same question you and I do. Does anybody want me? What does it look like for you to tell them, yeah, you are wanted? So God, we, uh, we hear you. You want us. And I just pray in, in just a quiet moment that you would turn your heart to God and ask him that question, do you want me? Do you want me, God? Do you want me? Amen.
Uh, well, I look forward to being back again next week. Whether or not you like it, I'll be here. Uh, and if it's cool, if anybody wants to receive prayer, me and a, probably a couple other people will be down here up front after the service. Just want to pray for you. If you need to, I think, receive that message in a, maybe a deeper way, we'd love to pray for you. Or maybe if there's someone that it's on your mind and heart that you just, they, they need to hear this, that we just want to join with you in prayer. So a couple of us will be up here after. Now may God the Father bless you with wisdom. May God the Son teach you about how much you're loved and wanted. And may God the Spirit help you be more loving, more patient, more kind than you were yesterday. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Every blessing.